Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Is there any sort of concern with him, with the tightness? Sure, but, you know, we'll get some imaging and uh, see where we are with it here shortly. Not really. A little too early to know the severity of it. So, we'll see. I'm glad he spoke to told us. Cautionary to get him out of there, not take any chances. What did he tell you guys exactly? Just had some tightness. Is this the first time you've heard about that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Obviously, we wouldn't have pissed him if if he had, if he had had any issues with it before. 2020 was really just getting my feet wet and, and getting some big league time underneath me and facing those lineups and then really honing in my routines and kind of the way I go about myself day to day and. Last year, I feel like it, it all kind of came together. I came in with a really good picture in mind of, of what I wanted my routines to look like and how I thought I could prepare myself to perform. And it was it was good after the year to kind of take a look at things that I had done well and, and how I can build off of those and, and also kind of some of the things that need work and, and how we can bring those up to the level of, of the other parts of my game. And I'm looking forward to now that I kind of have those routines in place and, and – my daily agenda to, to really build off of that and continue to tweak it as I need to and um, keep moving forward and, and getting better. Did he express that to you like, hey, we know we're going to need you at, at some point? I mean, I think it's known. You know, you look at everything. <clears throat> I know you. there's been a lot of uh, attention as to the average age of our starting rotation as it stands. And, um, but you look at last year. We didn't make it out of spring training with five healthy starters. So I don't think it really needed to be said. You know, I think we understood where we stand and um, that, yeah, I mean, the, the likelihood of those five guys making 30 starts each is highly unlikely. So at some point, something's going to happen, and, and we saw that last year, and, and you see it every year. So, um, no, I think it was just kind of come in and do my work and, you know, help, help contribute how I can. of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, March the 12th, 2023. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Sylvia. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. 
And you can show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. You could also get me on Instagram, TalkingMetsNoG. And, of course, I want to welcome in the good folks from the fan-sided podcasting network, as well as RisingApple.com. Welcome to another edition of the Talking Mets podcast. And I got to tell you, what did I say about a month ago when pitchers and catchers reported you would be bored of spring training by March 10th? Here we are. We're past March 10th. And I said you wouldn't even make it till St. Patty's Day. Now, maybe that's a little bit harsh with some of the injuries, and we have a lot to talk about. I think there's some early thunderbolts in Mets camp that we'll talk about. But let's face it, um, short of like the news about another pitching injury, how many times do you want to hear Buck Showalter talk about the importance of the bat boy? I mean, I get it. The new rules, getting into the batter's box. I, I, I got to give Buck credit here. He really knows how to entertain the media, but even Buck is probably running out of stuff to talk about. Last year, it was, what, two weeks, two and a half weeks of spring training because of the lockout. Now you're back to a regular spring training, really a regular spring training for the first time since before the pandemic. There's really no things going on. So I got to say I'm a little bit bored, but we still have plenty to talk about, and I'm going to try to entertain you and take you away from the mundaneness of spring training. I always call this time of the spring the dog days of spring. Now, it's a little bit different because of the WBC and everybody's scattered about and you go out and you watch a ball game and you know by the fourth inning you've got guys that quite honestly will they ever see a big league ballpark in their careers? Probably not. Large percentage of them, but you get a chance to see a couple of prospects. Clearly for the Mets it's an opportunity for them to get Beatty and Vientos and Alvarez and Mauricio another bomb today, some playing time, and get a chance to see them for extended uh, big league camp, what have you. But plenty to talk about. Uh, big news, obviously, we're focusing on David Peterson today. He's going to become a big part of the rotation. Darren Ruff is a conversation that we need to have. He had an interview yesterday. I don't think it went well, and I'm starting to get worried about Darren Ruff, and I'll probably tell you something that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Still more emails, people telling me, Beatty, Beatty versus um, Escobar. What about Vientos making the club? Eh, maybe I should change my mind a little bit. The spring is long. I've been pretty uh, declarative about my position on the roster. Maybe I'm starting to waver a little bit. I'll let you know. There is one player that I think is critically important to the offense, especially considering the Mets' depth is more centered on the infield and DH. I'll talk to you about that. And then to round out, I'll go through the mailbag, talk about the WBC, which started, and we'll probably have some fun and smorgasbord on the way out. But first, let's start with the rotation. So a week ago, I came to you post-Kodai Singa debut, and I talked to you about how important Jose Quintana was because Singa's a guy that's going to rack up a pitch count. You already saw with the new ball, he's got a little tendonitis in his finger, you know, no big deal, but that's an, industri- an in- injury. If you remember, go back into Mets history. You know, uh, irritating the sheath of your finger where you grip a baseball is a serious injury. Now, I'm not saying saying his injury is serious, but go back to Brett Saberhagen's first season with the Mets. That's exactly the type of injury he had. He injured the sheath of his finger, and he was out a big chunk of that season, especially after he had a great start. So it's something to keep an eye on. I know the Mets saying it's not serious, but... As I said last week, here's a guy, Senga, that's expected to come in, 
be the youngest pitcher on the staff, be a guy that can take over for the innings and performance and the 15 wins that Chris Bassett and the consistency that Chris Bassett provided. And knowing that he's got all these cultural adjustments, he's got these adjustments to the ball, to the mound, you're already seeing a guy that may need to be pushed here or there from his regular turn in the rotation during the season. Now, they all say, okay, it's the spring, you would he would have made his start, but you just don't know. Now, a week ago at this time, I said Jose Quintana, the veteran, who, you know, statistically, because he had such a good year, went into St. Louis, pitched top of the rotation, went into the postseason, shut down the Phillies in a postseason matchup, how important he'd be to maybe take over that Bassett role as the veteran to give the Mets innings, trust him in a big spot against a good offense, even on the road. And right now, crickets about what's wrong with Quintana. If it's a fractured rib, we have some history here. Most recently, Chris Sale that says it could be a while. And the fact that it's over a week and the Mets aren't going to get any kind of answer to the media for another few days. And they're talking about doctor availability. I get that. Sounds like a specialist to me, if you ask me. That's not good. And I think we all are ready and prepared to get the news that not only is Quintana not going to start the season, we already know that, but that he's going to be out a while. This is the first Thunderbolt of the season. And around this time last year, if you remember, maybe a little later, we got similar news about Jacob deGrom, who t- turned out to be a, a stress uh, fracture in his, uh, in his shoulder. He was out until August. And, you know, again, it was the same thing. Well, we'll see. Maybe he could be back by May. We all knew. I said back then, you're not going to be seeing a DeGrom rehab start until you're preparing for your 4th of July barbecue. Maybe Quintana won't be quite as severe, but I wouldn't be surprised, especially when it's a bone and a bone needs to heal. Time frames vary based on the person. Uh, It'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. Now, here's where it comes down. Here's where, you know, basically the rubber meets the road. You now have to start dipping into your pitching depth. It's not even the first week of the season. So we've talked about how fortunate the Mets are to have some good options with their depth. David Peterson, Tyler McGill, Joey Lucchese. Didn't look great today, but he's got some uh, uh, you know history of success as a back end of the rotation starter. And then the youngster, Jose Buto, who got a, a start in Philadelphia last year. He hasn't looked great this spring. Maybe the Mets need to go out and look for some more veteran arms to stay at Syracuse to come up and provide some innings. Maybe they're going to have to look into the opener. And actually, this injury to Quintana, assuming that, as I personally feel it's going to be a long time, may require the Mets to rethink their bullpen. I'll tie it all together for you in just a bit. So now the spotlight, and to quote the the great Bob Barker from The Price is Right, David Peterson, come on down. Uh, The spotlight is on David Peterson, a guy that, similar to some of the other uh, you know, Mets prospects, you guys all know, fans fall in love with prospects. They always think best case scenario. They always dream on prospects. And they tend to look the other way on the warts of these prospects and make declarations about why they should be given, uh, you know, scholarships for roster spots and failures ignored and successes that are always promised are just around the corner. Now, David Peterson's a little different. I don't put him in the same camp as uh, Dom Smith, but I've been critical of him as uh, pretty much as well. Came up during the pandemic season, told you that despite the fact that he navigated a bunch of base runners, he had a good deal of moxie. I was impressed with what I saw during that pandemic season. The Mets rotation was in shambles after Noah Syndergaard went down. Marcus Stroman opted out from the COVID uh, pandemic season. 
And he had a decent 6-2 and two record, 3.44 ERA, outperformed the peripherals, and earned himself a spot in the rotation coming to 2021. And that's when he had, I think it was a, a Liz Frack, or was it called a Jones injury, where you kind of you have a, a broken bone or some kind of fracture in your foot, had an awful 2021, regressed, at times was non-competitive, and uh, you know came into last season as the Mets built out their rotation with Taiwan Walker and Carlos Carrasco as somebody that was on the outside looking in. Now, very quickly, with Walker getting injured and then Scherzer going down, DeGrom going down, Peterson was able to go out, and despite the fact that he was ticketed for the bullpen when he was coming up, and largely AAA, made 19 starts and did pretty well. Uh, I think we all agree that David Peterson was very important to the Mets, especially because if you go and look uh, up until September when he struggled, uh, and especially in the May, in the June time frame, right after Scherzer got hurt, uh, he put up some big numbers. In four starts in June, he was 2-1 and one with a 3.180 RA. He was pretty good throughout the summer. He was a guy that could give you six innings, three runs, pitched a really big uh, uh, game one of that uh, August doubleheader against the Braves where the Mets swept uh, the doubleheader. So here he is in a pennant race at home, pitching a big game. Now, down the stretch, he put up a couple of stinkers, specifically the one against Chicago, at City Field, non-competitive, one that was a very aggravating game while the Mets were getting swept by the Cubs. And really, that was the three-game series that blew the division, in my opinion. But for the most part, David Peterson was competitive. And if you look at his numbers in 2022, unlike in the pandemic season where maybe he was a bit lucky and his moxie and his ability to navigate tons of runners on base gave him a better stat line than what the peripherals were, his peripherals were indicating a pitcher, albeit a league average one, that was a little bit better. So here's a guy that's uh, FIP was 3.64. If you look at some of the other peripheral ERA type of uh, forecast, it's somewhere between 3.6 and 3.8, pretty solid. His walk rate's still a little bit high at four per nine innings, but his strikeout rate is well north of one per, um, uh, you know, one per inning. And the biggest stat that we've been citing is his slider and how his slider is this great strikeout pitch where its whiff rate is like 48%. I mean, that is a, uh, a big deal. Uh, you know, uh, with, that kind of, with that kind of stuff, it, it comes down to what we've been saying about David Peterson all along. David Peterson is a guy that if he gets ahead, and he gets ahead of, of hitters and, and commands his pitches and locates and throws strikes, really simple principles here. When he's ahead in the count, and, he, and he's not laboring, and he's not you know walking the ballpark, and he's not falling behind and throwing those fastballs, those four-seamers down the middle, they're going to get clobbered. He's a very, very effective pitcher, and he's a pitcher that could be pretty good and pretty exciting. And when you talk about a 47 to 48% whiff rate on his slider, put in perspective that an elite closer like Edwin Diaz, who's at 54%, which was his career high uh, last year, uh, hovers in that kind of neighborhood. So he's hovering in a neighborhood similar to Diaz where he gets ahead. That hitter has to be prepared to protect the plate. But when that slider comes in and is executed at the level that it needs to be, they have no chance. For the most part, it's strike three. Goodbye. So that's an exciting thing to have for a pitcher that now is being asked to come in and replace the innings and the performance 
of a veteran in Quintana, a guy that was highly paid, a guy that performed in game one of the postseason at a high level against a very good offensive team in the Philadelphia Phillies, a team that wound up going to the World Series. So now you look at the rotation, and you got Verlander and Scherzer, these two elite Hall of Famers, one, two. And now you go three, four, five. You saw Carrasco today. Again, a guy that struggled against good uh, offensive teams, good teams on the road specifically. A guy who I've given you the numbers struggled against teams over 500. A guy that typically you'd be happy with five innings, three runs, six innings, three runs, and maybe some dominant performances against undisciplined, free-swinging, bad offenses. You know, that's that's what you get. And he happened to have a streak of games against some of those type of, of teams middle of the season, which I think inflated his win total. You start to look at that. You factor in Senga and some of the uncertainty of Senga and now the health of Senga, which was already a question mark. And David Peterson becomes this critically important piece to the Mets rotation. And the question is, is it pie in the sky to expect him to perform at a level where we all know he can be a decent 4-5 or five starter. He's a fifth starter. He's a guy that at some point as this rotation becomes expensive and you can't justify paying everybody 15 to $20 million a year, he's the kind of young pitcher that you have to develop. You, not everybody that you develop coming out of the minors is going to be an ace. It's not going to be a one-two. You want those guys. You want Harvey. You want Syndergaard. You want DeGrom. But you need some Steven Matzis. Guys, now, Steven Matz was highly regarded. He was a guy that many thought he was top of the rotation. But can David Peterson give you the kind of performance, if not better, because Steven was a bit below league average, but Steven Matz was the kind of guy that you could count on to go out there. Yes, he would have your clunkers and his stinkers that, in a lot of ways, would, would bloat that ERA and those overall numbers. But you knew at any given moment, because of his talent, because of his ability, that he can go out there and give you a top-of-the-rotation performance. Now, I'm not sure Peterson could do it as consistently as I think Matt's could, because I think Matt's was very talented, but they're not all that much different. Lefties, tons of potential, at times frustrating where things kind of spiral on the mound, and they have what Peterson had in September against the Cubs, basically a third of an inning in five runs. Matt's would have those kind of outings. But now it comes to the point where there are certain times in a pitcher's career you know, Peterson has been around long enough now where, look, this is his fourth year in the league. You know, he's not yet a free agent. But listen, he's, he's starting to face uh, the time in his career as he heads into arbitration, as he heads into the meat and potatoes of his prime. He's 26 years old where if you're going to make some money and you're going to stick in this league, kind of like a Steven Matz did as he got his contract from the Cardinals after the Mets traded him, now's the time to start pushing to the next notch. Instead of being the guy that is shuttled to Syracuse and only put into the equation when there's an injury, do you want to be a guy that, when Quintana comes back, starts to make you question, how can you keep him out of the rotation? Because he's not there yet. He's the number six option right now. And I don't think any of the options, six, seven, eight, nine, and I'll throw 10 with Eliza Hernandez, None of those individuals should be in the bullpen as a long man, a la Trevor Williams. I think what Trevor Williams did and what he provided was good for a veteran like Trevor Williams, but it's not what you want out of those individuals. Remember, Peterson talked about it. I think I heard him on some obscure podcast not too long ago talk about how challenging it was for him, and, and he was very appreciative how communicative Buck and Hefner were 
throughout the process that he would be sent down to Syracuse. He had options. He still has options. And even though he might have pitched a really good game and, you know, he deserved to be in the rotation or at the very least uh, part of the 13-man bullpen, uh, 13-man pitching staff, he was sent down because there are options. And, and, and that could still happen this year. But right now, front and center, he's going to want to get to the point where, no, I want to be part of this. And the Mets have even talked about a six-man rotation. And perhaps if he pitches well as Quintana comes back, and that's, a, I think, a long ways down the road, uh, that could become a reality where now you start to plan your Peterson, how you worm him in, you know, and things like that. So here's what I would say. I think unlike some other options on the Mets depth chart, McGill, who everybody seems to like, but with mechanics and, and his injury history, I'm not sure he can last. Joey Lucchese has had some history of success, but he's coming back from Tommy John surgery, and sometimes that takes some time. I'd like to see him get some significant time down the minors. And let's face it, Eliza Hernandez, I mean, there's a guy that hasn't pitched well in Miami for a while. He, to me, he's just, he's a guy that you bring in when you need innings, and I think he won't be the first choice out there. And then, of course, you have the young kid in Buto who has some potential. There's been some scouts that have been excited about his potential, even though he's not the most heralded Mets prospect, but right now has shown in spring training and his short, you know, few innings in the big leagues that he's not ready. So front and center, this is David Peterson's opportunity. And I think we're going to learn a little bit about him. I know that he had the injury with his foot. Uh, He's looked good so far this spring. He has some of the peripherals that we all uh, look at that indicate he can be a very effective starter. Can he settle in to be a number three? Basically, what I'm trying to do here is trying to take as much pressure off of Kodai Senga as he assimilates into the American game as possible. I think that's critically important. And I think that's where Jose Quintana came in. And the injury to Quintana, in my opinion, is a double whammy because not only does it take a veteran arm that had potential to have top-of-the-rotation success out of the equation for a long period, potentially, but it puts more front and center, you want to say, pressure or focus on Kodai Senga, which I quite honestly think is not healthy uh, for any pitcher coming over from Japan that is trying to learn the American game, but particularly in this market with this team, with the aspirations this team has. So maybe I'm overreacting to that, but I really feel that that's important. I think that now, as you can see, these are true thunderbolts. As the Mets get into the season, You have no feel of what this team is really all about because they're scattered about the WBC. You do know that you have a good number of these guys that have a history of, you know, playing with this club and the history of what went on last year. But we talked about the pressure that this club is under. We talked about the economic arrows that are pointed at this club and about the fact that they are this big market with the team, with this transformative owner, how teams are gunning for them. Well, you don't want to have teams gunning for you and having that pressure when your starting rotation is falling apart. And right now... You're basically looking at it, putting Senga's health, let's say it's moderately a concern. Katana's is a big concern. You're putting two aging Hall of Famers at the top of the rotation that are still very elite, but are hugging 40 years old or at 40 years old. A Carrasco, who's a back end of the rotation veteran that probably is five innings, three runs. And now you've got all these question marks. And that is usually not a recipe for success. Now, remember. The Mets last year went into opening day with Tyler McGill as their uh, opening day starter. They got 19 starts out of uh, Peterson. They got a certain amount of starts out of Trevor Williams as well. They lost Scherzer and DeGrom for big chunks of the year. 
Nobody could have predicted 100 wins, much less even 90 to 91. You'd figure they'd be in the high 80s like the Phillies were if I had told you at, uh, before this season started how many starts that Scherzer and DeGrom uh, would miss. Now here, maybe you're looking at it a little bit differently where you got some fortuitous health with Verlander and Scherzer, and that's an elite top of the rotation, and now you're trying to figure out three, four, five. But in a lot of ways, the real key here, why I'm making a big deal about Peterson is when Scherzer went down, when DeGrom went down, and when that rotation was in flux for a variety of reasons, whether it be Taiwan Walker being hurt or maybe Carrasco needed to miss a start or had a clunker, Chris Bassett was always there to come with the seven or eight inning performance that put them right back on the horse and pointed them in the right direction. And right now that guy's not there. You don't know if Senga could be that guy. I do not believe Carrasco's that guy. It's probably a lot to ask for Peterson to be that guy. But he has the potential, obviously, with his repertoire and, and, and his youth. Um, and it's, you know, Singh is the guy that you expect not only to do that, but to be that high potential ace that you, you know, snagged out of Japan. But you're asking a lot of the guy who, you know, is learning a lot and, and, and dealing with a lot. So this is a tremendous opportunity for David Peterson. In a lot of ways, I'm going to be watching him now as much as I was planning on watching Kodai Senga. Because early results and how the Mets can perform uh, are going to be dependent on that. So um, we're going to take a quick break. When I come back, we're going to talk about the bullpen. We're going to talk about Darren Ruff. We're going to talk about the roster. Because now with this injury, and also I saw an interview with Darren Ruff, and, and I started to think a little bit as I watched this interview how maybe this place is not for him, similar to J.D. Davis. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe there is an opportunity here for the Mets to incorporate one of their young bats into this roster from day one. And I also now feel, because of the Peterson, uh, excuse me, the Quintana injury, the Mets need to have a rubber arm and a veteran coming out of that bullpen as they get to the the final slot. So it's changed my opinion a little bit about who's going to come north. So let's take a quick break. More to come right after this. Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Say goodbye 
to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. How's the wrist now? Feels, feels a little bit better than it did. Spring stats are obviously kind of impossible to measure. Just how do you evaluate yourself and how you feel right now? Uh, you know, swing decisions, things like that early in camp. Um, timing, your timing's good. Um, things like that. I guess, how do you feel about your swing decisions and timing? It's still uh, coming along? I mean, yeah, yeah, work in progress. Is there like a number of at-bats you like to get from spring training? Uh, not really. I mean, there's been camps I've done well. There's done camp, been camps I've done bad. And once the season starts, it, uh, I mean, you could be feeling good and go out and not be good. And you could be feeling bad and something clicks right at the beginning of the season. So I don't think there's uh, a rhyme or reason to how things go in spring versus how they go on day one. You said the wrist is feeling a little better. Is there still parts in your, your swing where you do feel it a little bit? Uh, I mean, at times. Do you hope for that to get better, or do you just kind of have to live with it the way that you said you have for a couple of years? Um, I don't know. I'm not a doctor, so I don't know how this condition works. I mean, sometimes I think it'll bother me, and sometimes it doesn't. And yeah, I think it's a management thing but I don't I don't know all right we're back uh, a lot more to talk about and where roster is built everything is interwoven together so just because we're talking about Quintana and his potential injury and, and maybe the Mets get good news on this I, I I just don't expect it and David Peterson making the the roster there is a ripple effect to all this because you're taking a veteran and you're basically removing the chains down a little bit and you're getting some consistency in innings and performance that historically you could expect to now variability. And and I think that that's important for us to understand. Now, before I get to that, because I think it impacts the bullpen and maybe just maybe if you were watching the WBC there's an old friend, a veteran arm, that maybe the Mets could look at. But let's talk about Darren Ruff because the Mets offense, and there is a key to the Mets offense, which I'll get to later. The Mets offense has been pretty much the topic of conversation here by the fans since the day, and here comes that name again, Carlos Correa decided he was going back to Minnesota, and the Met that was not a Met, then was a Met, then was not a Met again, flew the coop. So... This platoon at DH, the Vogelback rough platoon, Mets got so little at the DH spot. We've talked about it so much, you're probably sick of it. But Ruff was supposed to be this elite right-handed version to the elite left-handed version of the DH. It's almost like uh, Art Shamsky and Eddie Cranepool playing first base for the 69 Mets, if you want to go and, and evoke history a little bit, uh, you know, what like we like to do on this show. And I looked at Ruff, and you heard the clip coming in, and I, and I looked at Ruff's body language, and I listened to his answers, 
he sounded annoyed. He didn't want to be there. These are the kind of questions that are only going to get bigger and louder as he struggles. I mean, let's face it. We talked about Escobar last week in their context of Beatty and how a veteran like Escobar, who struggled early last year, and now with Beatty, a prospect that the fans are all clamoring for, the spotlight gets on Escobar. And could you figure out, uh, you know, think about a scenario where early on he's hitting about a buck ninety-five on May first. Maybe opening day he makes an error to lose a ball game. How those cries will get louder and longer, and it takes the maturity and the veteran leadership and the kind of you know manager that Buck Showalter is to stay the course with the long term plan, knowing that he's got a guy like Escobar that is beloved in the clubhouse and has this long history of success. Now with Ruff, who was an import late in 2022. And not necessarily the clubhouse presence of an Escobar and not playing a position as a platoon righty that is overly hard to fill. And actually connects to Escobar because Escobar is somebody who hits uh, left-handed pitching pretty well and could easily slide into that right-handed component of the DH platoon. A better spot for a veteran, and Keith Hernandez talked about it during the broadcast today on uh, Picks 11, how how veterans are better equipped to handle the platoon than maybe a youngster who's chomping at the bit to play every day and doesn't have the big league reps that an Escobar does. It opens up the conversation at this point as Ruff now has tendonitis in his his, his uh, wrist. He said he's had it for a couple of years. These are the kind of injuries, especially when you have issues with your wrist that take away your power, that take away your ability to hit, could directly be related to some of the struggles he had coming over and maybe the struggles he had coming off of a really great 2021 in San Francisco. And when asked, Hey, what do you know? It was basically, I don't know. I'm just going to have to live with this. That's not a comforting type of thought for a lot of Mets fans. He's not making a ton of money. He's making 3 million bucks. And truthfully, if he can produce against left-handed pitching at the close to 900 OPS that he has historically, he's a steal at that price. But Right now, you're looking at a guy who doesn't look comfortable here, struggled after the deadline. J.D. Davis, who hit really well in San Francisco after he left, very well might, you know, not that he's going to become Jared Kelnick here, but might be hitting the tar out of the baseball out in San Francisco, and you know what's going to happen. The fans are going to get angrier. The media is going to start talking about it. And similar to Escobar, what happens if Ruff goes uh, 0 for 4, strikes out three times, and came up with uh, a couple of critical times in the in the game and don't doesn't produce? What you heard in that clip is just going to become louder and longer and replicated. And let's face it, it's a guy that right now admitted already that he wasn't all that comfortable coming here when he was traded midseason. Now, it's spring training. It's early. You're not going to go crazy. I think, what is he, 0 for 11? You know, not hitting the ball great. But let's be honest here. You got to start as a, as Billy Epler and Buck look at this roster and assuming that there could be a taker for Ruff. You may look at the situation and go, well, Beatty's hitting well. Yes, he needs work defensively. But Eric Chavez even said that, you know, he's got a lot of faith that he can improve. He's put a lot of time in with Troy Tulowitzki. You can work on that. Look at the Phillies with Alec Bohm. You know, he he worked on it at the big league level. Not ideal. You do have some defensive replacements late that can give cover to Beatty in a big spot by bringing Guillaume in for defense. And um, you look at Ruff and you say, well, maybe this is the opportunity here as you get late into spring training where you go out and you 
maybe trade rough. You're not going to get much for him. Maybe you get a reliever that you could shuttle with some op- uh, options. Maybe you get some kind of 4A starter with some potential that you could shuttle with some options. And that's something that over the next couple of weeks might become a real conversation if Beatty continues to hit and improves defensively in the Grapefruit League. Now, I got a couple of emails in the mailbag. Uh, it's ironic. It was from exactly the same type of conversation uh, that they wanted me to bring up. And it you know ties into Beatty and Escobar. And it was almost, to a T, the same question from an Anthony Gentile and uh, a Pat Zemanski. And both of you, I want to thank you for listening to the show, but both basically said, hey, Mike, you keep talking about not wanting Beatty on the roster, but Escobar's defense, based on defensive defensive metrics, hasn't been all that great over the last couple of years. And I get that. Here's what I will say about Escobar and defense. I really don't get crazy over defensive metrics because I feel like they're so hard to put into context even when you deal with the shift, and you really have to look at a player. And that's the big thing about defense. You have to look at a player day in and day out over the course of 162 games to really get a feel of who they are defensively. I really believe that. You could go and look at scouts and and get scouts' opinions and all that as we kind of, you know, do our research. But truthfully... I, I just don't even really go to it. And I'm not saying that it's total trash. I'm, and if you do, Pat, and if you do, Anthony, I'm not saying you're doing anything that's wrong or ignorant. What I'm saying is it's just not a metric that I take as seriously as the eye test. And I didn't think he was a gold glover, but I think he was solid. I keep going back to comparing him to a Scott Brocious. You know, this solid veteran that could hit down in the seven hole in the lineup, provide some pop and run production, and really good leadership in the clubhouse. And and I think Buck likes him a lot, and I think that that plays a lot into it. But right now, the conversation, Anthony, the conversation, Pat, to me is not Beatty versus Escobar. This Darren Ruff situation now is becoming front and center. Now, everybody wants to throw Ruff off the island. I mean, pretty much since he struggled last year, there's been no sympathy in the Twitterverse. You probably, I don't listen to WFAN. I'm sure the, the WFAN, WFAN callers don't have much to nice to say. And I get into the weeds here and the nuance. And let's face it, most talk shows are not going to do that. Look at how elite from a run creation rough is against left-handed pitching, just like Vogelback is against right-handed pitching. But the real block to me, and the guy that's the easiest to move, is not Escobar. It's rough. Now, I still believe the Mets are going to go into the season with Ruff as the right-handed component of the DH and Escobar third, and Beatty's going to at least, you can at least give him a month down at AAA Syracuse to work on his defense and prove that this Grapefruit League toward pace is real. I, I the, Remember the old saying, be careful what your eyes show you in March and September. These are times when stats get funky, things happen, and it's the real meat and potatoes of the season from April to August when the rubber meets the road here and real, uh, you know, water finds its level is what I, I would say. So I still haven't changed my position on the roster, but it's wavering a little bit because I'm looking at this rough interview. And I'm like, that body language is bad. He didn't seem really into it. You know, this is going to be a topic of conversation. If there's a couple of players that absolutely need to get off to good starts, 
offensively for this Mets team. Not from a standpoint of critical for the Mets offense, because they've got plenty of good hitters. And they and they have, uh, which I'll get to after the break, a hitter that's far more important to the offense than and to the team in the lineup than Ruff. And I'll get to that. But if there's two guys that really need a hot start in their respective roles, it's Ruff at Escobar. Because it would mitigate the media noise, it would mitigate the fan BS, it would probably allow Beatty to do his thing down at AAA. And from a certain point, it allows Vientos to go out, go down, go down there and maybe do his thing. Like At some point, Vientos is not going to have a spot on this roster outside of DH. I don't think he's going to play every day at third. He's not going to play every day at first unless something happens to Pete Alonso where, God forbid, a slider cracks his, his, his hand and maybe gets hit in the helmet with a fastball like Marte did today. God forbid. I mean, look, the Mets are still a walking pinata when it comes to them at the plate, so we have to keep an eye on that. Uh, but he, as a young player, is going to have to do exactly what Keith Hernandez said as a challenge and potentially be a platoon partner with Vogelback. Now, Vogelback struggles. Maybe that all goes out the window and the Mets say, hey, look, we got to start incorporating this kid. He's our DH of the future. He'll be a guy that could pop you 25 and 80, 25 and 75, hit left-handed pitching at elite level. I mean, a lot of the things that Ruff does, Vientos has done at AAA. We just haven't seen it at the big leagues. And there's a certain there's a certain amount of uh, unknown there. So away you go. So that that really, to me, you know, when I got those mailbags, I started to think about, I think it's deeper than Ruff versus, uh, Beatty versus Escobar. And then I saw the, the, the Ruff clip, and then I'm looking at him in the game, and I'm seeing the numbers, and I'm like, you know, if there's one guy that is expendable, it's really Ruff. Now, as far as the rotation and the bullpen, I'm starting to look at the bullpen a little differently since... Quintana went down, because I'm assuming your rotation is going to be Verlander, Scherzer, in some order, Senga, Peterson, Carrasco, or Carrasco, Peterson. doesn't really matter the order, one, two, three, four, five. These guys don't care. Put them on the right day to get them the right rest. And I had said that the bullpen was already solidified five, right? You got Diaz, you got Robertson, you got Adovino, you got Drew Smith, and you got Rayleigh. I know Rayleigh, uh, Rayleigh, uh, has the hamstring injury, which doesn't sound like it's going to get him out to start the season, but that could be a couple of weeks. So maybe Rayleigh, Rayleigh starts off on the DL and it opens up an opportunity for somebody else. Number six, I feel like John Curtis has pitched his way short of an injury onto the roster. Um, you've got Nagosik as number seven, no options, has pitched really well and can give you some of that uh, length that you're looking for. And then I was talking about how Zach Green, the Rule 5 draftee from the Yankees, who has some potential and and put up some good numbers in Scranton last year, at the very least to start the season, should be your last man out of the bullpen. Basically a last man on the roster, if you want to call it. See what you got before you hand them back to the Yankees. Well, he has not been impressive throughout the spring. Walking a lot of hitters, getting hit. I still think he will stick around to the very last day because they're going to want to vet that decision. But now, the certainty I had that Zach Green would perform well enough to at least be brought north to get a look in April, that has changed a little bit. And knowing that Quintana is going to be out for a pretty substantial period of time, it appears, 
you want a veteran reliever coming out of that pen that I'm not a big fan of the opener. There's a possibility if there's a double header, the Mets may go to that if they don't want to shuttle a pitcher up. They may need, you know, early on, who knows, maybe Carrasco uh, gets knocked out in the fourth inning and they want to go and, and throw a, a rubber arm reliever out there. Yeah, you got to go sick, but really with pitchers, the guys are the rubber arm guys are the veterans that are at the point in their career where if it snaps, their career is over, they've got the experience uh, to be able to handle their bodies, they can get warmed up quickly, situations don't bother them, they could be adaptable to different situations. And the guy that continues to come up, who's been with this organization now three years, and actually has been an opener, and I think provided some really solid uh, innings last year when the Mets needed it, when their bullpen was a little burnt, a bullpen that at times was a little uh, thin, and, and that was one of the reasons why they went out and they got Michael Givens late in the season. And that's Tommy Hunter. I mean, Tommy Hunter was really good last year. He's a guy that doesn't walk hitters. Yes, he pitches to contact a little more than you like, but he's a guy that could go multiple innings. I know he's got a very significant back injury. Buck likes him. He's got a history of Buck dating back to his days in Baltimore. He's a guy that came up as a starter before he moved to the bullpen and became a setup guy slash closer. So he can go multiple innings. And truthfully, out of all the guys, I know John Curtis was an opener, I think, in Tampa. uh, And he did it the other night uh, at some point. But if you want to talk about using a guy as an opener to get a couple of innings and have one of those kind of, um, you know, situations, uh, Tommy Hunter is that guy. So as I look at the bullpen and as I think about it, look, unless Zach Green, and this is where the, the Jeremy Hefners and the Bucks and the analytics team, they all have to work together to really figure out what do they have here in green. Because when you hand them back to the Yankees, and it was just a bit, you know, spring is about getting your stuff together. Unfortunately for green, he's in a situation where he doesn't have that luxury. He's trying to make a club, and making the club is more important because if he doesn't make it, from the Mets perspective anyway, he gets handed back to the Yankees. Uh, unless the Yankees don't want him, which I don't know why they wouldn't pay the... $50,000 or whatever it is to take him back. Who knows? Maybe the Mets work out a deal. Cashman and Epler are buddies. Maybe there's something there. Who knows? There's always possibilities there. But now as I look at that, I think bringing Tommy Hunter north, assuming that he's healthy, and he continues to look pretty decent in the Grapefruit League, might be the way to round out that bullpen. I talked about, you know, oh, Nagosik has no options. Maybe you trade him and keep, you know... I think right now the the thing that you're looking at, and I laugh because I have to go back to early January when everybody was looking to trade Carrasco. Oh, the Mets have too many starters. You know, let's put Peterson in the rotation and trade Carrasco. You go from five starters and four depth to nothing overnight. And that's why I'm going to give you one other thing before we take a break. And I don't like to use the WBC as anything more than what it is. It's a nice tournament, a nice distraction where you have a combination of elite big leaguers, 4A guys from different countries, and players somewhere in between competing for uh, you know national pride, let's say, and to grow the game of baseball. But Matt Harvey has pitched a little bit for Team Italy. I guess his mom is Italian. And he hasn't pitched, you know, lights out. He's not really missing a lot of bats. I did see a stat on Twitter where he's inducing some light contact. If you look at his pool play, um, I'm not quite sure... Uh, I would take the pool play and whatever 
conference he's in or pool he's in, with the level of talent he's going up against, is anything as a barometer of any best case scenario? I would think it'd be four A, uh, base case scenario. Uh, you know, that's that's what I would say. And um, you know, they're playing uh, Chinese Taipei, and who else are they playing? Are they playing Ireland? I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, I got to go look it up online at this point. Um, but it's a player that has a history here and it's a player that you might want to take a look at a little longer if he continues to pitch well through the tournament and he would get a minor league deal. He'd have to go down to Syracuse. I think I saw a video online that showed that he was throwing like 92 miles an hour working out over the off season. Certainly not the same high nineties Harvey with a wipeout slider that could strike out, you know, 12, 13 guys and just overpower hitters. You know, that's not the guy. That guy's gone. Ever since the thoracic outlet, outlet surgery, that guy's gone. But at this point, as the Mets see very quickly how pitching depth could go away with the Quintana injury, with, you know, the little scare here with Senga, who the heck knows what happens with Carrasco. And, you know, we know the injury history of McGill and Luke Casey. You don't really have, out of the depth, even though they're interesting depth pieces, pieces all of those guys outside of Buto have had some significant injuries over the last couple of years. Peterson, McGill, uh, Lucchese. So it, it would behoove the Mets to go out and get veterans. Like I know they got Trevor Cahill last year that it didn't work out in the minors. But get veterans that have a realistic shot of maybe providing innings. Not that they're going to come out and, and be top of the rotation, but can they take the ball for a couple of starts and give you six innings, three runs? Five innings, three runs. Keep you in a ball game while you navigate an injury situation. You're not expecting to go out and shut down the Braves in Atlanta. That's not what those guys are going to do. But can they give you good innings against the Pirates or the Nationals at City Field? That's what I would say. So I would. I know that it's like grasping for straws and digging out of the past. And I know that there's some negative history with Billy Epler and Harvey from Anaheim with the whole situation, what happened there with the, the death and the drugs and all that stuff. So maybe that's not even realistic. And I would guess it probably is something that the Mets would have to vet the off the field component of who Harvey is. I don't know how deep that goes with Epler and how much Epler wants to get back into the sauce with Harvey, but it is something to think about. So, you know, the Mets are going to need more veteran arms. Harvey at this point is a veteran for a arm that has, uh, a resume and and has had the ability, even with Baltimore, I know he didn't pitch well, but he had a few outings with Baltimore that was fairly decent. Look, a guy like that's going to come up, and if he gives you five, six starts, you know he's going to pitch probably to a five ERA. He's going to have maybe one or two good outings. He got clobbered in a couple. Of, you know, he is what he is. You know, has he figured something out playing the WBC, playing for Team Italy, the humbleness of being out of the league? Has he figured something out? I can't answer that, but it would be something interesting. So, Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. When I come back, you know, we talk about Beatty. We talk about Escobar. We talk about Ruff. We keep having this debate about the kids all spring. But you know who the most important Mets hitter is? He's the guy that had a, is, is, you know, being bashed over, over, the, uh, over the head with a baseball today. And uh, he's pretty important. And I, I, the Mets are going to need him to be as good as he was last year. So let's take a quick break. I think you know who I'm talking about. And we'll have we'll be back with more right after this. 
And that is a high drive, deep left center field, and gone. And what a return for Starling Marte. A double and a home run in two at bats. Starling Marte, we have missed you. So you heard the home run in his first game from a couple of days ago. He had a double and a home run. Starling Marte, not as successful today, got beamed, unfortunately. And Buck Showalter said it looks like that he's okay from early tests. Maybe the Mets dodged the bullet. Again, every time you see a Met get clobbered at the plate, and I know LaCastro and Canna have made a, a career of that, but when you see whether it's Pete Alonso, McNeil, you know, Marte, it's like you're always Nimmo. You're always holding your breath, and it's weird. It's like almost there's a magnet. And certainly it's an advantage for the Mets where they get base runners and what have you. Counts to your on-base percentage, but I would prefer them to do it in a little bit more healthy way. And after hearing how injured Marte was, now it shouldn't be a surprise. We all knew early in the spring when he was shut down, there was something going on with Marte, and he was very coy about it, and he never revealed it at all. You knew that there was maybe something going on because he didn't steal as many bases. From an advanced metric standpoint, he had one of his worst base running seasons of his career. And he only really turned it up when he had to, when he was smelling a base hit or trying to break up a double play. So you knew something was going on, and then it turns out there was a lot going on. It wasn't just the broken uh, finger that happened when he got beamed in Pittsburgh late in the year. It was uh, hernia, you know, double hernia surgery. Both of his groins... Uh, were injured. So the fact that he was able to play 118 games, he would have played a lot more than that if he didn't get beaned. Probably would have been up around 135, maybe 140 if he didn't miss the last month of the season with that unfortunate situation. I mean, he's a guy that typically plays about 130 games a year. Historically, he's had some nicks and bruises. So you know you're going to need to give him a blow. That's why the Mets brought in Tommy Pham, a veteran that could you know provide that, even if, even if Marte is going to be out for a week or so, maybe a better version of what they were looking for than what Tyler Naquin was providing them. But when you look at offensively what Marte provided, and it wasn't his best year both sides of the ball. That would have been the year before when he was with Miami and, and, and Oakland. And he had some really good years in Pittsburgh on both sides of the ball. And in a lot of ways, I think, because he played in Pittsburgh, I remember back in 2019 when there was some fans – contacting the show and saying, Mets should trade Brandon Nimmo for Starling Marte, put Marte in center. I was like, no, nah, no, nah. like Nimmo's an elite offensive run creator, and he is. Now you have both. I wasn't into that when the Pirates were looking to trade him uh, as he was nearing the end of his of his uh, you know contract there in Pittsburgh, and he was heading into his free agency. But when you look at the Mets' offense and you look, yes, they were able to still win in September, and they were still able to score – you know, high fours in terms of runs per game. But I think if you look at the Mets and expect the Mets to be at that five runs or more per game, it is critically important to get Marte into that lineup. No disrespect to Tommy Pham. Tommy Pham is at best the league average hitter. He's going to provide you some on base and some pop, but he's not the defensive player that Marte is. Marte's got a great arm. He showed some great range in the outfield. Had no problems, um, you know, moving over from center to right in his best interest now, similar to what I said about Cespedes late in his career and Carlos Beltran late in his career. You want to be able to not have to navigate that large center field. Give that to Nemo. He's younger. He's got the big eight-year deal. Let him take the responsibilities of being the center fielder. He proved he could do that. 
But when you look at Marte last year from a run creation standpoint, he was fifth in the league and all of baseball, actually, not just the National League, fifth in run creation um, for all right fielders. Yeah, he's not at the level of Aaron Judge or Juan Soto or Mookie Betts, but he's better than Ronald Acuna Jr. was last year, um, better than a Mike Yastrzemski, better than a Nick Castellanos, better than a Charlie Blackman or a Whit Merrifield and guys like that. So Marte is an elite run creator. The Mets are going to need him to continue that. I don't know what you could expect from him from a stolen base capacity, even with the larger bases. He's talked about he doesn't feel his body as he gets it into shape, which it's not there yet. It's going to prevent him from doing that. This is a guy that you had penciled in for 50 stolen bases. There's a possibility, and Nimmo talked about it on the broadcast today, as he's trying to put you know, maybe stolen bases into his repertoire. But if you can get, I'm not expecting... Vince Coleman, Ozzie Smith, Willie McGee from the 80s. But if you can get Nimmo to get 20 to 25 bags, stolen bags, and stay healthy, and you can get Marte to get up to 35 to 40, I mean, you could manufacture some runs for a team that right now, one of the biggest things that people can criticize them for is that they don't hit enough home runs. They don't really strike out a ton. So you get Nimmo on, Marte on, maybe a little bit of stolen bases, you know, ground ball, fly ball, you get a run. You know, you need to be able to, if you're not going to hit home runs or league average in home runs, and I think the Mets might do a little bit better now that they have some sort of competent DH platoon in some capacity up there, and a better year from Escobar, maybe like we talked about Beatty getting into the mix there with some pop. I think the Mets' home run situation will work itself out. And who knows, McNeil, who took a big drop at home runs from 2019, a good thing because he was more the hitter that you needed him to be. Maybe there's still some pop in there as well. Maybe there's some balls that will go flying over the wall now that City Field is, what, 10 feet uh, shorter and right? Maybe you get a couple of dunkers there in right field. Who knows? I mean, that's another conversation for another day. But I think when Marte was out and when you look at the Mets' depth, the Mets' depth of Beatty, Vientos, Escobar, uh, me, Beatty Vientos, uh, Mauricio, if you want to count him in there. He's not really a right uh, right fielder. It's DH and field base. It's not outfield base. Uh, you don't see a lot of options that are good for the Mets uh, on their, uh, on their you know, non-roster invitees that are going to go out there and um, excite you if, if Marte's out a month. DJ Stewart, Jalen Davis, Lorenzo Cedrola. I mean, LeCastro's probably, you know, if, if, if Marte's not ready, LeCastro's probably the guy that's most likely going to get time. And look, like, you know, LeCastro is probably a better offensive version of Terrence Gore. Not probably he is. You know, and you look at him, you know, with the Yankees last year, has been with the Dodgers, you know, had a had a, a little bit of playing time in Arizona. I mean, he's a guy that, you know, yeah, he'll steal a ton of bases, but he's a significantly below league average hitter. When I say he's a little bit better than Terrence Gore, I mean very little. I mean, he hit a buck eighty six for the Yankees last year. For his career, he's at two twenty seven a six fifty six OPS. So he, you're not gonna get a lot. It's a huge, huge downgrade. You know, yeah, you got Tommy Pham that could sub in, but I mean, that's a downgrade, too. You go from a guy who has a great arm, borderline gold glove defense, when healthy, a great base runner, hits home runs, sets the table, 
was every bit, you know, when he was hot, part of that core offensive group that carried the Mets when that bottom third of the lineup was doing ungats between Dom Smith and Escobar struggles and the catching situation. So um, I think this is a guy that we have to look at. We have to hope that he's healthy. We have to hope that he gets himself into shape. Looks like he feels he'd be ready for opening day. He still has about, you know, a little less than three weeks to go. So historically, you saw how he managed his body last year. He's a guy that knows his body, so I would trust that he's going to, you know, do what he has to do to get healthy and will do the right thing. But I think if there's one player to watch the rest of the spring to see how he is from a health perspective, not from a results in the box score, you know, those hits will come. We don't want to leave the hits in the Grapefruit League. It's Starling Marte. Because without him in the lineup, the Mets were a different team offensively. In September, they were able to navigate it, but there was more holes than you would like. You're putting more pressure on Escobar. You're putting more pressure on the rough Vogelback platoon without him. There's a huge downgrade with LaCastro and, and Pham in the outfield. And like I said with Quintana, all these is all connections. They're all connections. Every injury, every situation that happens on a roster all connects and puts the load on a player or players that don't have the same resume and are going to be thrown in situations where you can only get so much out of them. That's why they're depth pieces. They're good depth pieces, and you need them, but you don't want them for a long period of time. Now, could I see a scenario where Marte doesn't come north and maybe gets another 10 to 14 days down in Port St. Lucie? Maybe. I don't know. Um, I think the Mets are going to be cautious with injuries, and they're going to play the long game. They did that last year. I mean, even think about how the bullpen was managed by Buck. It was always about, hey, I'll bring in Joely Rodriguez here. I know that that's not the most popular move. I'm down by a run. He gave up two runs, but I want to save the bullpen for tomorrow because the odds of me winning tomorrow are better than me coming back in this ballgame. Now, there was some debate on that by certain individuals, but it's similar to how the Mets look at and say, hey, do I need to get out of the gate in the first 10 games and be 8-2? and two? Be nice, but that ain't going to mean a hell of a lot in September if my guy is burnt out and can't perform and we don't have Marte available down the stretch. So anyway, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to wrap up. I got some more mailbags, WBC, questions about Jeremy Hefner and his impact on the pitching staff, and we'll smorgasbord some thoughts. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. There are tons of great baseball nuggets that you could take away when listening to the Talking Mets podcast. On a recent edition, Dan Hayes, Minnesota Twins beat reporter for The Athletic, told us why he thinks new Mets pitching coach Jeremy Hefner is not just a future star in the dugout, but why he may wind up in a front office role down the road. He's really proud of what he was able to accomplish. I don't think he came out, you know, he's not a big big time draftee. Uh, he was never a prospect in the Padres system. And I, I think that he knew he had to work for it and maximize everything that he got out of you know, he had to find tricks. He had to find everything. He wasn't gifted with this 95. And I, I think that knowing how to make those little adjustments, knowing how to maximize every bit really helps those guys because they know how hard it is to get to the majors. And you can deal with someone and, and know this isn't the easiest thing in the world. You know, and I, I think that helps a lot in connecting with guys. And you've tried everything and you can suggest things to guys and see what works, and, and I think that's very helpful stuff. And he's he's going to be somebody that I think that, you know, Mets fans will appreciate just because 
he works extremely hard and, and, and looks for all the angles to try and get his guys better. And, and he, he's sort of a ride or die with his guys kind of guy. He will not, uh, he, he works hard. You know, he'll, he'll tell you if somebody needs some work, but he won't say it on the record. He doesn't, he doesn't crush his pitchers in the paper. He basically works along with them and, and, and finds ways to motivate. And, um, you know, it, it's a, it's a good combo and, and he really has good insights to the game it wouldn't surprise me at all if one day he ends up in a front office just because of the uh, the I, the understanding of how front offices work, how scouting works and analytics work. And, you know, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he's a assistant GM or a future GM. But, uh, you know, I know he wanted the on the field stuff and really wants to work with players right now. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. We're back. Final thoughts. And I wanted to wrap up. You heard that clip, uh, that promo. That's an old promo from when Jeremy Hefner was first hired as Mets pitching coach right after the 2019 season into 2020. And I had Dan Hayes from The Athletic uh, talk a little bit about Jeremy, who was the uh, assistant pitching coach, I believe, for the Twins for a couple of years. But um, Corey Finkel sent a a mailbag question earlier in the week, really bringing up uh, Jeremy Hefner and basically questioning, to paraphrase what Corey brought up in the the mailbag question, he was questioning the value of pitching coaches, brought up, I could fix him in 10 minutes from Rick Peterson. There's a lot more to that story. He didn't exactly say that in the way that it's been portrayed, but I'm not going to get into that today. I talked to Rick extensively about that many, many years ago, many years ago. And, um, you know, basically Corey's question is, I seem to feel that since Hefner took over, taking away the pandemic season and the wildness of that, the last couple of years, the Mets seem to be doing better and the pitchers are doing better uh, than you would have expected. He brought up guys like Taiwan Walker and the kind of you know near all-star season he had last year. I think he was an all-star the year before. Uh, Carrasco winning 15 games. You know, we talked a little bit about about that earlier, how you had guys like Trevor Williams and Peterson and McGill really bridge the gap when Scherzer and DeGrom were out and uh, were hurt. But what was interesting is the couple of things. I think you heard from Dan Hayes in that clip, really the value of Hefner, who, and here's why I think Hefner's road, road to the big leagues and his embracing of analytics and data and the way he did it is more beneficial for a team when a, a coach does it this way than maybe the other way. And I'll explain. So Hefner was a ball player, 4A type of guy, had some potential, didn't realize it got hurt a ton of times. I think Tommy John surgery a couple of times was basically depth for the Mets in 2012, 2013. Had a couple of good games, but generally was a guy that was a 4A pitcher. And he was a guy that, you know, had to sing for his supper, you know, uh, all the time. And I think after he retired, he took his traditional pitching mindset and the way he was developed growing up in the game in the, you know, mid-2000s and started to embrace analytics and some of the new ways of thinking and has incorporated that into his repertoire. So now here's a guy that was a traditional pitcher went through all the same things that a Steven Nagosik or Tyler McGill or David Peterson, 
all these guys. Now, he wasn't Max Scherzer or Justin Verlander, but he certainly, because of his embracing of analytics and improvement, can talk to guys like that. I mean, Verlander in particular is a guy that has used analytics to revive his career when it was starting to teeter a little bit before he got to Houston. And, you know, how he studied pitching data and applications, spin rates, things like that. I mean, there's a there's a whole article about Anthony DeComo, from Anthony DeComo uh, from a couple of days ago over on MLB.com. It's called He's One of Us, How Hefner's Coaching Style Fuels a Pitching Staff. But essentially, one of the reasons why Hefner is successful is similar to the reason why I thought Carlos Beltran had a chance to be successful even more so when he became manager of the Mets very briefly, was that he was a different version of these guys all the time. He was the young Latino player that didn't speak English coming up and being drafted. He was an all-star. He was a guy on the backside of his career that needed to change positions and struggled and had to redefine himself after an injury compromised him. He was the veteran towards the end of the bench that had to be a mentor and wasn't contributing as much on the field to the end of his career. He was every version of a ball player's life cycle. Now, Hefner was never a Hall of Famer like Scherzer and Verlander, but for the most part, he was a version of all these other guys working his way up through the minor leagues and fighting for a spot. And I think particularly when you have stars like Verlander, um, a pitching coach is there to be an assistant to them and help them within their routine. Is Hefner going to be changing Verlander? Is he going to be changing Scherzer? They're going to give him the instructions, and he could maybe give them a tip or two and look at something, but ultimately those guys are maestros. It's the David Petersons. It's the maybe even the Kodai Senga and his acclamation into American baseball. It's Tyler McGill. It's Joey Lucchese coming back from a, an injury. It's kids like Jose Buto, you know, finding their way onto the roster. So one of the biggest things that has been cited about Hefner's success is his self-awareness as to on the field and off the field the challenges that a lot of his pitchers go through probably helps them put them in positions of success, helps them read a little bit better what uh, they need, probably allows him to be more direct and blunt because he's experienced that. And I think that's for any manager in any kind of business that you can you know, go to. When you've been that person, when you've been in that person's shoes and you've either been successful or taken that experience to an, uh, another way in your industry, you gain a little bit more credibility and I think you're better at your job. So... Corey, to answer your question, uh, I suggest you read the Decomo article from MLB.com from March 10th about Jeremy Hefner. You heard the comments from Dan Hayes that were all the way back from three years ago when he was hired from Minnesota about why he felt not only would he be a good pitching coach, but he might be somebody that could wind up in a front office. Who knows if that's going to happen? And I think ultimately the reason why Jeremy Hefner is successful is because he's self-aware enough to understand his personnel and put himself in their shoes and be able to put a plan in place to maximize whatever the best version of themselves is. That's all you could ask from a pitching coach. Um, you know, I, I always remember with Dan Worthen, the Worthen slider and all this stuff. It was like, it was ridiculous. You know, it was always like, you know, he's going to teach everybody this slider. No, you got to go out there, use data and analytics within the scope of these guys, mechanics, their capabilities, their repertoire to find the right solutions to maximize their potential. And with the veterans and the guys that are Hall of Famers, be an asset to them and figure out how they're going about their craft. And they basically give you the instructions and say, here's the instructions about what I do. And I need you to keep these in mind and help me execute these instructions. Now, maybe you have some pointers. R.A. Dickey, everyone says, I'll go Dan Wharton did what R.A. Dickey. 
He did nothing with Ari Dickey. Ari Dickey was a finished product when he came to the Mets, and he told Dan Worthen, this is what I need you to look for when my mechanics get out of whack. I'll take care of the rest. Dan Worthen didn't know a knuckleball if it hit him in the head. He didn't know how to master that. So I think that that's what, you know, I've kind of veered off a little bit here to answer your question, Corey. But I think it goes back to a really important thing is having lived in the game and lived in the game and a lot of the versions of the players on your roster, you know, what they are, and then incorporating information into that, I really believe that it's the best combination of analytics and player information that you can have. I think you get a little bit of that with an Eric Chavez, too, on the roster. I mean, I think the Mets coaches, yeah, you've got uh, the driveline guys that have incorporated themselves into the organization. And I'm sure, you know, look, you don't have, you still have holdovers, not as many from this, uh, uh, the, the, the data-driven, over-data-driven uh, Zach Scott version of the Mets from a couple of years ago. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I personally think coaches that can evolve and take their common sense uh, experience from playing. And guys like Chavez and Hefner, it's not like they've been out of the game that long. It's been in the last 10, 15 years that they were on the field. It's not that long ago. I mean, I remember Jeremy Hefner pitching for the Mets like it was yesterday. Um, I think those are the best kind of coaches. You combine that with an old school, evolving, you know, modernized version of Buck Showalter, and I think you have a really, really good coaching staff that you can feel good about uh, in that dugout. Now, uh, one other thing before we wrap up, uh, WBC. So uh, let me go back to my notification. So on Twitter, I'm trying to find it. Uh, NoroDoc18 on Twitter uh, basically said, you know, what do you feel about the WBC and, you know, the um, you know players being all around and not being in camp? Do you like it? And the answer is no, I don't like it. I don't like it. I haven't got into the WBC yet. I think I will after you get out of pool play and you get down to the final, you know, four to eight teams. I do understand what baseball is trying to do. I know they're trying to grow the game and there seems to be tons of excitement if you watch clips and videos over in Taiwan and other parts of of the world where they're playing. Uh, There's no easy way to do the WBC. It's something that I think the, the sport needs to grow. If you're going to grow, you need to get an international audience. You need to be able to uh, get your sport to be embraced outside of what it really is right now as a regional sport. It always will be a regional sport during the regular season. But from a broader perspective, just like the Dream Team in the 90s was able to open up the NBA to the world, and now you have all these international players, I look at it as if you could open a baseball to the world, it's limitless to know where the talent you can find and, and you could grab can be. We'll probably see it throughout uh, spring training and into the regular season with Kodai Singh and the Japanese media. I know I read a tweet recently from one of his former teammates where Shohei Otani was like, hey, the, the media uh, scrum that I have in the United States is nowhere near what it was in Japan. So I'm curious, maybe it's dwindled down where they get it worse over there. But I don't have anything against the WBC. I just think they're in a tough spot of when to play it. The preseason is not the best time to play it. You want your players in spring training, amping up, getting themselves in shape, being with their clubs. Uh, after the season, which would make the most sense, like when they used to do those all-star tours in Japan back in the day in November into December, if you want to go over there, I mean, you'd have to find a couple of warm climates to play baseball, domes and stuff. You can do that. But now you're competing with the NFL. 
And I don't think anybody wants to compete with the NFL. I mean, is anybody going to watch the WBC on Thanksgiving weekend? They're not. I mean, it would be great for the baseball junkie like me to have baseball over the weekend. But let's face it, you also might be a little burnt out from the season. And you're like, hey, I need to decompress. I need to get into the holidays. I need to get into another sport. So you're competing with all sorts of other things that probably don't maximize its marketability. And then you have the real solution, which would impact your season, which they're trying to prevent, which is do you stop the sport for two to three weeks for an extended break in July? And how do you do that? Because you'd have to start the season probably early, maybe incorporate some double headers, maybe end a little later than you like, and really do it as a midsummer tournament. Similar to what, I guess, uh, European soccer has these tournaments, and I know the NBA has talked about putting a midseason tournament together. Like, I think that's something to consider at some point is, is this, does this have enough cachet? You get it into the midseason when these guys are ramped up. You obviously have some rules and restrictions about how to use your relievers and all these guys. And is there less chance of injury? I don't know. That's There's always a chance of someone getting injured and blowing out their arm. But can you market the sport during a time when they would be the star of the show? I know that there's probably a television reason why not to do it in July when people are vacationing or around and about. And, you know, look, nobody puts on their hit shows in July because nobody's really watching television in the summer. They wait till the fall. But it's something to consider. Now, I know that there's people far smarter than me and my common sense approaches here that are going to look at this and say, why you're an idiot, Mike, and why this is why we do it in March and it's the best time. Because you have, you know, you're up against the. Yeah, the NBA is starting around into playoff form, but you're not in the NBA playoffs yet. NFL is over. Uh, baseball is just coming back into the conscious of the American public and around the world because, you know, you're back into that season. And, I mean, I don't think it's really impacting March Madness and, and what have you. So maybe it's the best time. But I think there's a role for it. I understand why they're doing it. Hardcore Mets fans don't like it because they got a you know a dozen players scattered about and you're looking at your 4A slash, you know, years away players donning Mets uniforms against the Rays today while they're, you know, taking them on in, at Clover Field in Port St. Lucie, but it is what it is. So that's my thoughts on the WBC, and, and I do think that it's something that has a role, and I think it might be something to explore as a midseason tournament, and can you do that without impacting the season? That's probably why they do it in March. They don't want to impact the season, but at some point, if you believe in this, Maybe there's some season to be sacrificed in some way, shape, or form for this particular tournament to grow the sport and the greater good of the sport. That's something for the the powers that be in baseball to decide. They're more in clue, more in tune, more insider than I am. So anyway, that's all I got for you guys. Really enjoyed uh, as we hit into the dog days of spring training portion of the Talking Mets podcast, Grapefruit Roundup. Um you know, we'll continue to come to you week in and week out. We're a couple of weeks, almost three weeks away from the start of the season. So the rosters are rounding out. Uh, even though it's, as I predicted, the getting boring here, spring training, there's always things we find to talk about to pick your interest on the Talking Mets podcast. So continue to come and tune in weekly to the latest edition of the show. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. You can send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. You can also check me out on Instagram, TalkingMetsNoG. I am your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. We'll be back with another TalkingMets podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody. Hey,
Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.